I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 87 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and our latest series on the rise and demise stories with John Barba of My Golf Spy. The rise and demise of McGregor Golf. If you are a younger golfer, you may not realize the importance of McGregor Golf, From the early days of Hickory Clubs through the major championship winner and current CEO of Live Golf, Greg Norman. McGregor might even be called the greatest premier golf brand of all time. McGregor's clubs were in the bags of Byron Nelson when he won 11 tournaments in a row. They were in the bag of Ben Hogan for all nine of his majors. They were in the bag of Louis Suggs, 11-time major championship winner, and in the bag of Jack Nicklaus. Outside of maybe Tom Stewart and Robert Forgan of St. Andrews, McGregor might be considered the greatest golf equipment company of all time. And if it isn't, it's certainly in the top three. John Barba, my golf spy, joins us for this two-part podcast, where we will recount the rise and demise of McGregor Golf. From humble beginnings to a humble death. Without any further ado... Let's jump right into our interview. John, welcome back to Talking Golf History and another episode of Rise and Demise. I am really excited to be here, especially talking about today's subject matter. Well, you know, I, I'm glad we, we started with the others first, because this is such a tremendous story, don't you think? It's, it is, you know, for a, it's a century-long story that has more twists and turns than a, you know, than a, than a, than a good spy novel. And, you know, it's one of those things, too, where you, you see the, the direction things are taken and you want to shout at the computer screen when you're doing your research. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't go there. And then they go there and the results are what they are. It, what a great company. What a great story. And, um, and, and, and what great golf equipment. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I've, got two, I've got two sets of McGregor's sitting right behind me and uh, they're not going anywhere. That's it's fantastic. I'm, I'm excited today, folks. We're diving into the birth and death of the golfing behemoth McGregor. While some listening to our show today may think of McGregor as a low budget golf brand that can maybe be found, maybe be found at Walmart, but in its day it was big, if not bigger than any brand we have today. McGregor was in the bags of Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, and Jack Nicklaus. Their name was synonymous with the best golf clubs in the business. And if you don't know this story, strap in and get ready for a wild ride. John, it's hard to imagine that our story of all places starts with freaking shoes. <laughs> I mean, can you share the story of how McGregor was born out of the leather shoemaking business? Interesting. Uh, it started in 1829. The company started in 1829 as the Dayton Last Company. 
Now, that doesn't mean it was the last company in Dayton. It was the, they made shoe lasts. It was started by two brothers, English immigrants, uh, Zeba and Archibald Crawford. And uh, they were carpenters. They were woodworkers. And they opened in 1829 a, a company to make shoe lasts. They were pretty inventive. They came up with, they developed a, a, a copying lathe that allowed them to make shoe lasts really, really quickly. Well, what's a shoe last? You may, be, you may very well be asking. It's a wooden form that's shaped like a foot that they use in, the, in, in shoe manufacturing and shoe repair back in, back in the day. And uh, it was kind of important. Now, why was it in Dayton? Most shoes back then were made in Massachusetts. Uh, but as the company was moving, or the country rather, was moving west, um, uh, boot manufacturers uh, opened up in Cincinnati and in St. Louis. So they had a they had a ready made market for them right there, and they made really good shoe lasts. They were huge. They they uh, company grew by by the early 1900s. They were the largest shoe last manufacturer in the country. Yeah, and they 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 were they were they were they were really big, and um, I mean this totally makes sense. Like yeah, we should make golf clubs. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> that that lathe was that lathe was interesting because it was basically what they do is they put this hunk of wood on there and the lathe would move would remove anything that didn't look like a foot. Um, it was perfectly and uniquely suited for making golf clubs, although it would be a good seventy years before they even thought of making golf clubs with that lathe. And, and so how does John McGregor enter our story? So he's not part of that initial group with the, the shoe last company, correct? Right, right. He was, uh, uh, it was, it was Archibald and Zeba and then their, their heirs, uh, running the shoe last company, uh, in, uh, 18, 1875, John McGregor who's a Scottish immigrant from St. Andrews, uh, joins the company as a partner. And then 11 years later, a guy named Edward Canby joins as a partner. And then the company became known as Crawford, McGregor, and Canby. Now, McGregor was spelled M.C. Gregor. Yeah, right? not McGregor, not as Mac people Gregor. may or may not know, as M.A.C. Right, right. It was, he, was, he was an M.C. Um, and he, his, his role is kind of interesting, not so much in the development of the golf business, but getting the company into golf. Uh, Canby was the real dynamic business guy who was kind of running the show at, at, by the time he came on board. Uh, McGregor was a hardcore golfer from, uh, been being from being from St. Andrews, and he eventually got Canby hooked on the game. What happened was McGregor, uh, early 1890s, kind of got homesick, and he wanted to go back to St. Andrews, move back to St. Andrews. So he sold his shares in the company back to Canby, and to celebrate the whole whoop-de-doo, uh, he and Canby took a trip back to Scotland to see the old country. While they're there, you've been to St. Andrews. Anybody's ever been to St. Andrews? You spend five minutes in St. Andrews, you are hooked on golf. 100%. Uh, and, and, and it's very addictive. Very addictive. So Canby came back from uh, Scotland hooked on the game. Absolutely hooked. But he still wasn't really into golf. The only connection the company had to golf was they, they, they'd like to play it. Mm-hmm. Right? So they weren't so, even making even golf shoes at the time. No, oh, no, gotcha. We're, we're, we're making anything. And they really weren't interested in the golf game. But at about this same time, something was happening 850 miles to the east that would change the course of history. And it was at the Myopia Hunt Club in Massachusetts. What happened was the, the, the club pro there was a, guy named, uh, was a guy named Robert White, who would later go on to be one of the founders of the PGA of America. He was a club maker and the club pro at Myopia. And one day he's working in his shop making, uh, making a wood. 
and it, it, it was a very primitive process. You had a saw, uh, hammer and chisel, um, file, and then sandpaper, and it'd take you a good day to make a club head. Um, so he's working away, working away, and a carpenter, a local carpenter, happened to come by the shop and saw him working, and he said, hey, there's a company down the street next town over in Lynn, Mass, at a shoe factory that could probably do what you're doing in about three or four minutes. And you can, you can imagine White's reaction to that. He says, well, wait a minute, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a craftsman, I'm a club manufacturer, club maker, you know, this, this could put me out of work. So he was looking at it kind of, a, kind of as a, a, a defensively. And nothing really happens as a result of that. And that, that's 1894. Two years later, White has taken a job at the Cincinnati Country Club. And virtually the exact same scenario plays out. He's working away in his shop, making a club head. And one of the members walks in and sees him and says, hey, you know what? There's a company over in Dayton that can do what you're doing in about three minutes. You should go check it out. So one time is an aberration, two times is a, is a trend. So he says, maybe I better go check this out. And he goes over to Dayton to the Dayton shoe last company, well, it's Crawford, uh, Crawford, uh, McGregor and, and Canby. And he walks around and he sees what's going on. And by happenstance, he actually winds up having a meeting with Canby himself. And they start talking about golf. Now, Canby's a avid golfer, you know, uh, white is a, is a club professional. And they start talking and Canby start, he starts to learn about the growth of the game of golf and he puts numbers and facts and data to, to, so what, to what year are we talking about? 1896. Okay, so yeah, 1895 is a huge year where hundreds of golf courses are being built. Right. Big time for golf. And if I swear, during this conversation, if Canby was a cartoon character, you would probably see a little light bulb pop off over his head about halfway through the conversation. And then then uh, White says estimates that you know, maybe 125,000 golfers in the U.S. at the time maybe spending about $10 million a year on, on golf. And at that point, a little money signs would appear would appear over the light bulb, <laughs> and he says, "Hey, wait a minute! This could this could work." Within less than six months, uh, the company starts to make golf clubs. And what year were you looking then? In March March of ninety seven. They started cranking out their first their first golf clubs. Yeah, and and, and what could, what are they stamped? Do you know? Well. That that was interesting because they the, the, they were stamped Crawford, McGregor, and Canby because that was the name of the company, and that really didn't change until probably around 1900. But when they first started, I mean these these people they, these guys are expert experts with wood with lathes and expert woodworkers. They were cranking out about 250 club heads a day. Wow. Do we know? Probably a tough one, but do we know if they were the first to use a lathe for making golf clubs? The first that we know of, yeah, first that we know of. Now, a Spalding mate was starting to make glove, uh, golf clubs early in the U.S. Maybe a good six months earlier, um, but if they were not sure if they were using the lathe. But what made um, the the I, I get get the word get the name right Crawford McGregor and Canby. It's always a mouthful. What made their CMC? Club, we can call them CMC. Let's call them CMC. There we go. What made their clubs unique was persimmon. Oh, yeah. Harder wood. You bet. Right. Uh, clubs up to that point had been made out of either dogwood or, or beechwood. 
Uh, but persimmon was unique. They had access to persimmon because persimmon was native in the U.S. to that to the southeast. And they had been using persimmon for years with the shoe last. So they just started to make club heads out of persimmon. Now, persimmon's a lot harder than than uh, beech wood and, and a lot less brittle than dogwood. And um, it was really uniquely uh, a uniquely uh, perfect wood for making golf clubs to the point where it was kind of revolutionary. So they very, very, very quickly made a name for themselves as a as as making really high quality, high performing uh, golf clubs. So and CMC think- just found they found almost immediate success. Oh yeah, almost immediate. And Canby smart man. Canby uh, in 1898 hires Willie Dunn as his first like golf expert professional uh, to work for him. And that gave them instant credibility with the golf pros, which were almost universally Scottish. So, so they had they, they all spoke the same language, um, you know. And, and they were they were they were just churning these clubs out, and also because they were good work woodworkers, they were making uh, hickory shafts as well. So they'd sell the shafts and the heads to the pros. The pros would assemble them, and, and away you go. Um, the can be uh, done relationship lasted maybe two years. They kind of got tired of each other and, and then split. That's when the name, the first hint of a name change came in. Without done, they still had to appeal to the to the Scottish club. club. Absolutely right. So, so what Canby did? Canby's a smart dude. He trademarked the name J Mac MacGregor with the M A C instead of M C, so it would sound more Scottish and less. Irish. And, Ma- and McGregor's no longer with the company, correct? Right, McGregor's long gone. That's so funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not Canby Company. It's like, eh, let's just use the old partner's name and throw an A on there. Yeah, yeah. Again, for, forward thinking, and, and again, he was a. He was he was a, he was an interesting guy. Uh, can't uh, can't be yeah, very the, the, John. We're past it. This seems just crazy to me. Is that McGregor actually had nothing to do with the golf business? <laughs> yeah, sold out, <laughs> right? And the company was named essentially after him. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was long gone by the, 18, by the unbelievable nineties, right? But but his name slightly altered would go lives down in infamy. The greatest name in golf. Right. The tagline. Was. I, I even I, I I did not connect those dots until right now, and it's just <laughs> it's amazing that they're using an old partner's name that sounds Scottish, is Scottish, add an A, and it's definitely Scottish, right. and it becomes like the name in golf. <laughs> and and you know the company is uh, at this time again they're 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 churning out clubs like crazy. By 1900, they were making so many uh, uh, club heads. They were actually exporting up to 100,000 club heads to the United Kingdom out of, out of Dayton. They're not only covering the U.S. The US market, but exporting 100,000 clubs a year to, to the U.K. So they, were, they, they, they hit pay dirt, and they hit it almost immediately, and they were a runaway success right from the get-go. Yeah, and at that time in 1900, heck, in Scotland, they were still being handmade. So there was really hard to compete yeah. with yeah. that. Yeah, automation, man. It's just the way, it's the, way of the world, you know? Early robotics. <laughs> yeah. American ingenuity at work, folks. Right there. Started started by two Englishmen. And, and the company, McGregor, then, it, it's fairly flexible in its early days, right? And they were, they were quick to adapt to market changes. I, I believe you mentioned they might have been one of the first ones to adapt retail versus the the green space. Well, they, they, they were working, again, almost exclusively with club pros at that time. Up through up until you know through World War One, uh, they a lot of great innovations. Uh, uh, they hired Will Syme to be there. Actually, might have been the first guy who was who carried the title chief club designer. 
Uh, and he designed things like the BAP, which was a kind of a, a the, one of the first woods that didn't look like that hockey stick kind of looking thing. It, it actually looked sort of like a golf club um, and called it the BAP because it looked like a biscuit his mother used to make when he was a kid. Uh, they had ivory inserts. They started selling full sets, too, which was, again, something that was unique and different. And the club pros just kept eating it up. After World War I, um, the, retail, the, the, the golf industry itself just exploded. During World War I, there may be like 740, 750 courses in the U.S. By 1929, there were almost 6,000. Bobby Jones is the biggest name in sports, maybe one of the biggest names in culture. So the game is just is now exploding. And because McGregor had actually perfected uh, mass production of golf clubs, they were kind of uniquely situated to start selling at um, you know, golf specialty retailers, sporting goods stores, and even department stores. So they're embracing this new market because they're 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 perfectly equipped to 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 seize the opportunity. They're embracing this new market. Their sales are going through the roof. They have record profits. The the club pros aren't aren't all that pleased. Oh, I can imagine. Right, that's their bread and butter. Yeah, and that's a scenario we're going to see play out later on as well. But they're they're riding high. They're making money hand over fist. They're uh, by the t- by 1929, they got out of the shoe last business completely. It was around 1920, mid 20s, golf sales exceeded the shoe last sales, and by 1927, retail had outpaced club pro sales. Oh wow! Yeah, so, which sets us up for uh, the big disappointment, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're riding high. What could go wrong? Yeah. You know, everything's everything's coming up roses until October 1929 when the stock market crashes. Yeah, it's crazy, John, because so many of these stories um, have parallels, right? So like in Penfold's story, you have the Great Depression and uh, its owner died. What, what, I, remind me how... Penfold passed away. Was I, oh, he was. Uh, it was uh, 1941. He was on a freighter coming back from New the York. Germans, the Germans, right? Yeah, yeah. And, he, and the freighter was sunk by a U-boat. And he, so he sometimes these stories they have these two moments in time that you know that doom a company or change its course. Here again, we have the depression, and then we have an event with Canby that changes the pace and and outlook of McGregor. Right. When the stock market crashed, actually, there was no it didn't have an immediate negative impact on on McGregor or the industry because nobody really thought this was going to last all that long. But by 1932, the handwriting was on the wall and things are looking pretty bleak. Retail drives up. Right. They, they had they were all in on retail. But by 1932, no, the people who were buying clubs at retail weren't buying clubs anymore. McGregor, unlike Spalding and the new competitor, Wilson, they didn't have other sports to fall back on. You know, people might still be able to buy a ball or something like that or other stuff to, to, to occupy themselves. Golf was a luxury. People weren't buying golf clubs anymore. They might be buying golf balls, and both Wilson and Spalding sold those, but, but McGregor wasn't. So times got real hard real quick after about 1931. By 1932, they had laid off about half of the uh, workforce, and those that were left were working maybe two, three days a week, uh, and things were pretty grim. At the same time, Canby's now pushing 80 years old, and there's no heir in sight that was either willing to or able to take over the company, so it was either close the thing down or try to sell it, and fortunately, Canby chose to try to sell it. And um, 
when he put it up for sale, he, he uh, contracted with a consulting firm out of Cleveland to manage the whole transition. And one of that one of the conditions that the firm had was they had to hire a guy named Clarence Rickey to be to run the show through the sale process. And that proved to be a rather huge, uh, a rather huge move on, uh, on, on, on Canby's part. And you, you mentioned that there was almost a, uh, a sale to Wilson. That would have changed the trajectory of the game, right? Right. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, two, two suitors uh, kind of showed themselves. Wilson being the biggest. When Wilson started up in 1914, one of the first things they did actually was hire away uh, McGregor's chief of manufacturing and some of their craftsmen. So there was a little bit of bad blood there. But Wilson, as a general sporting goods company, was growing and growing and growing and doing quite well. And they're looking at McGregor as a competitor. So if a competitor comes up for sale, hey, let's buy him, take all their people, take all their equipment, those really cool lathes that they have and everything else. And just, you know, why would we have both companies? Let's shut them down and just make Wilson bigger and stronger. That was that was kind of the thought of, of what, they, what these guys were going to be doing. Um, the other suitor was a company called the P, P. Goldsmith and Sons. And they were located in Cincinnati, right next to Dayton. So they had a local connection. And ultimately, they wound up buying the company. And they agreed, once the purchase was, was done, I think it was in 1935, 1936, to keep Ricky on as president. And, and help everyone out, Clarence Ricky has a very familiar last name. What's the relation? Right. He, his second cousin was Branch Ricky, who at that time in the 30s was the general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. Um, both, both Clarence and Branch did play professional baseball uh, in their earlier years. And Clarence actually had a football scholarship to Northwestern. So this was a very athletic family. And these guys were pro- master promoters, master businessmen, and real visionaries. And Ricky, of course, became very, very famous in 1947 for signing Jackie Robinson and bringing him to the major leagues and breaking the color barrier. Amazing relations. So, so Goldsmith purchases McGregor. What, what did, do we know what Goldsmith did prior to getting in the golf business? Well, they were a general sporting goods manufacturer. Okay, so that makes sense. It's not yeah, like some of the crazy purchases that are about to happen. Right. <laughs> it was rounding out the offering. It was They were a sporting goods company like Wilson, like Spalding. And so Goldsmith, and, and in particular Clarence Rickey, they come up with this genius plan, which, I mean, it's revolutionary from a standpoint that it changes the golf industry at that point. And perhaps forevermore. Would you say that's fair? I would say it goes beyond that. It's yeah, please. Of, what they came up with was a blueprint that I think any company in any business would be smart to kind of look at and take the parts out that are applicable. It was, it was really genius. And it was a, a multi-pronged approach on saving, on, on resurrecting and creating the new business. So, yeah, it, it's, it's something any, any company would be wise to, 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 to look at. And walk them through that process. What did they do that was different than, you know, the golf companies prior? Well, uh, Ricky himself was not a novice to the golf industry. One of the reasons he was recommended was because he was an executive at the Burke Company in Chicago. Um, Again, the way these things tie together is very, very interesting. He was also in Chicago, a member at Medina, and he was actually one one of the officers of Medina, and he was instrumental in Medina hiring Tommy Armour as the head professional. So there was that, that connection. So one of the first things he did when he, um, when he, was, when he took over at, at McGregor was to figure out how he could hire Armour as 
as the you know the head pro and an expert for McGregor. Now Armour was under contract with Spalding at the time, but within the hour of that contract running out, um, uh, Ricky signed signed him on. And yeah, together, and, to, and to put that in perspective for people, like Tommy Armour, not only was a major championship winner, probably one of the most what five most recognizable ga- names in the game of golf, but he was also considered one of the greatest golf teachers of his time. Right. And so like signing him on was an extremely big deal. I mean, it was a marketable name, you know, post Bobby Jones Mm -hmm. that could take them to another level of respect. And he was the silver Scott. And again, most of the club professionals were Scottish. That's actually when they officially changed the company name to MacGregor. Was it was I think nineteen thirty six. They officially changed the name to MacGregor, again for the Scottish appeal. Combine that with bringing on the Silver Scott, and you've got a you've got a pretty good groundwork to to to, to start with. Now the, the the plan they put together was crazy. I mean, the first thing was retail. We're not interested in. We're going to leave that to Wilson. We're going to leave that to Spalding. We're going to go after the professional. Yeah, and that's a big backtrack, right? I mean, because yes. in the nineteen twenties, that made them a ton of money. I mean, that's a very bold move to walk away from that. Right. Well, actually, in the 30s, it kind of didn't exist anymore, though, too. You're walking sure. Well, yeah, all the shops it. going bankrupt. But I mean, still, to backtrack on something that did so well for you, ah, it's crazy. Yeah, you, you walk away from it. and But, but it, it, it made good business sense because the people who belong to country clubs, the clientele of the, of the club professionals, they still had money to spend. So... It's just you go where the you go where the money actually is. So they they call that the carriage trade. So they wanted to to focus on what they called the carriage trade, the head professional, the golf professional at, every, at clubs all over the country. So they had a very aggressive plan, not to just hit the big guys, but the medium sized guys and even the small guys. the The Silver Scott line, the first clubs to ever carry the Tommy Armour name, came out at at about that time. Uh, they also made made a deal to hire Tony Pena, which again, real under the radar, but. All, just as important, I would say, as hiring Tommy Armour because Penna, Penna played a huge role in the in the in the the, the success of McGregor in the forties and fifties. Um, to the, the three of them, Ricky Armour and uh, and Penna, I mean, I, I, you might say uh, Ricky was the brains, um, Armour was the heart, and Penna was the soul of 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 McGregor. You know, for the next 20, 25 years. Uh, so he, he came on uh, he came on to be kind of the tour liaison. He was going to play play McGregor on tour, and he would be the guy who would try to recruit tour players to play McGregor and join the advisory staff, as well as recruit uh, club pros to join the advisory staff and be McGregor McGregor staff members and McGregor dealers. Um, they changed the name, of course, again as we said, um, and then Ricky went out to build. A sales force, and his sales force had to be unique. It, he wasn't just looking for salesmen; he was looking for guys who could play, because you had to have the respect and the street cred with the uh, with the club pros. So they hired. They, they tried to put together a a staff of salespeople that that were really really good players. Together, they tied that in with with getting the in house stuff squared away. Um, they wanted. Uh, that's the word. Uh, player craftsmen. That's what they uh, they called them. They developed a player craftsman program. They got very involved with all of the employees and made it a real family atmosphere. They were concerned about the employees' families as well. But the player craftsman was kind of an interesting thing. In all of their ads, they actually um, t- 
touted the player craftsman uh, thing that the, the guys that build your clubs play your clubs and they know what's important. They know what's important in making those clubs. So they actually had competitions where they would reward employees, not only for their club building skills, but for their playing skills. So that was a, that was a huge part in building that credibility and building the quality that the club pros wanted. Uh, they also had uh, uh, established highly personalized communications with all of the club pros, no matter how big they were, big, small, whatever, they'd get regular letters, personal letters from Ricky just saying, hey, how are things going? What can we do to help you? Anything you need, please let us know. The club pro was a really was a pro at a really small club. He sold maybe two, three sets a year. At least they'd be McGregor. You know, so that that deep relationship building was really important. And again, anybody anybody in business says, you know, peop, it's most businesses are people businesses. There, you build those relationships, and those relationships can sustain you when things go when things aren't going don't go perfectly. Right, so they 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 worked on that. They developed um, uh, bags and accessories and things like that. And then lastly, the last element was they built a they they established a custom club department that would make clubs only for those club pros cuz those club pros were still in comp would still take yes, part in competition. Yes, love it. Yes. So yeah, they, I mean at this time club pros are still you know playing in majors at, at times, right? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So they got they got the best of the best equipment, the best club makers, uh, those player craftsmen were working in that department. Tony Penner ran it. Um, so it gave him that credibility. So you know, any club pro could get the very, very best equipment that McGregor was uh, that that McGregor was selling. And then they unleashed Pena in his first real role of going out on tour, playing McGregor, trying to promote McGregor to other tour pros and to club pros. And and, and it's funny. I mean, you can't stress enough Pena's role. Oh yeah, he he kills it in this role, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, he does. And it's funny. He had a he had basically an unlimited budget. To go do this, he had an expense account where um, Armor would plop ten thousand dollars. This is the depression. He'd plop ten thousand dollars into this account, and Penna would spend it. When it was gone, he'd plop another ten thousand dollars in, and they just kept going and kept going and kept going. Penna never filed an expense report. All the money, and he would travel around. He always drive the biggest cars. He'd stay in the fanciest hotels, have the nicest restaurants, and he would schmooze. You know, and and everyone's looking at this like, who's this guy with McGregor? Yeah, <laughs> right. This dude's onto something. I Living want a big. Piece of that, right? I want a piece of that. And so and he, who are some of the names? Give us some of the names that Penna signs. Oh well, the the, the legend is legendary. Is it, within a I think it's in a two year period, he signed uh, uh, Jimmy Demerit, Byron Nelson, and Ben Hogan for less than five thousand dollars. And then he lands Luis Suggs. I mean, eleven-time major championship winner on the LPGA Tour. I mean, that's amazing. Oh God, the the staff that they put together uh, from the late '30s into the '50s was was a who's who of all stars uh, in in the golf business. I mean, you're right. I mean, other than I think what like Sam Snead is one of the ones left out, but he was with Wilson, was he not? Yeah. Yep. Outside of that, it's. It's everybody's McGregor. And, and go into how big that was. Like, how big was that club staff on tour compared to everybody else? It was huge. The, they, 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 even back then, they were keeping track of what pros used what equipment. And from 1937 to 1959, uh, more players were using McGregor gear than every other manufacturer put together. So Unbelievable. That's what you call dominant. I mean, and to put this in perspective for folks, I mean, Ben Hogan wins every single one of his majors with McGregor. Right. Like the Ben Hogan company is founded after 
1953. So McGregor is, you know, nine of his major championships. He's got McGregor in the bag, which is another phenomenal feat. Here's the thing. They, uh, during that time frame, I think they won 10 PGA titles, nine Masters, I think eight U.S. Opens, and the one British Open. They had 10 money winners and I think eight Varden Trophy winners on their staff. And that's just on the men's side. And, you know, as the, you know, in the, as the women's game was, was coming into, into play, they, you know, they, they were very aggressive in signing women's players, female players as well. So it's dominant, right? I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it is the dominant force in golf. It is Callaway, Titleist, TaylorMade, basically almost pushed into one during this 1940s, 1950s run. And in 1958, they decide to sell. Like, do we know why? Yeah. Um, 1954, Hugo Goldsmith dies. And his nephew, uh, Phil, takes over. Damn it, Phil. Damn it, Phil. <laughs> Apparently, Phil was fine. It was not, it wasn't a, you know, it was, he was fine. But by 1958, he was in, in, he was in ill health. So Phil had, no, again, going back to the way it was with Candy, there were no uh, heirs who were either willing to or had the, the capacity to take over. So it, they had to sell. Okay, they had to sell. And they put, they put it up for sale. And obviously the logical choice wins right. the bid. <laughs> well, the logical choice being, hey, these guys had the biggest check. That's right. And, and the logical choice was who, John? It was the Brunswick Corporation. Which everyone knows for golf. Right, right. Actually, <laughs> or instead. Brunswick, instead, bowling. Bowling, yeah. If, you, if you've ever gone bowling, you know the name Brunswick, right? Brun, you can still go bowling at Brunswick Lanes now. Um, but in 1958, Brunswick was, actually it's an old company, it's been around for over 100 years already. Um, and uh, they re, uh, the owner, uh, the president, was a guy named Ted Benzinger, who was a, who was a Brunswick heir. And a few years prior, they 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 their fortunes took a took a, a sharp upward turn when they invented the automatic pin setter. And at that time, that's when Benzinger started to acquire more companies to do that diversification thing. So they bought Zebco fishing reels. They had a boating company. They owned, they owned a company that made lug, you know, luxury boats and yachts and things like that. But they were also into office equipment, uh, surgical equipment, all other kinds of things. I mean, the the very epitome of mid 50s diversification they had no real connection to golf other than now they owned a golf company how did they run that do we know i mean do they, are they the take over wholesale or are they i mean is is at this point ricky's gone correct yeah clarence ricky died in 1945 in a car crash his son bob uh had worked in the factory when he was a kid and he went into a marketing role uh, not long after, and ultimately worked his way up into to the role of VP of, of 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 marketing for McGregor, and he was still a key player in here. And he 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 had you know tremendous contributions to the company over the years. One of them being signing Jack Nicklaus. Yeah. So what happens? Like in '58, Brunswick has issues uh, between '58 and '62. What what or Brunswick, I should say, and McGregor. What what's going on in that four year period? Oh boy. Um, when you ask how did they run it into the ground is a really good, right? Yeah. I mean, you have all the things going for you seemingly other than the fact that you're being run by a bowling company and in four years, the tides turn heavily. 
Right. And it wasn't so much that it was a bowling company. It was corporate. They wanted to run, they, they had, they were, they wanted to run every business they had in a round with a round hole. And McGregor was a square peg and they weren't going to change their hole to a peg. They were going to make the peg turn into a hole, you know, and, and, and it just, it was a bad fit from the start. Um, they ran it like a Harvard business school project. They changed everything. First off, all the were, things that were successful, <laughs> all, all the things that were successful. Nope. We're going to do it our way. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, they, they, you know, the, it was a top heavy management scheme too. the, the all the, they, the management drove around in luxury limousines. They remodeled all the offices, really fancy furniture and carpeting. I mean, they were going, they were living high on the hog, the three martini lunches, you know, all that. Yeah. All that so they're stuff. walking away from the, the club pro. Like what got them there, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, they were change, they were changing everything. Biggest change they made was they decided to move the company out of Cincinnati to Albany, Georgia, where they had four times the floor space. But it also was a way to reduce labor costs. But if you think about it, making a golf club is a, it, especially back then, was a very specialized skill, and only a small handful of supervisors who were responsible for training you know, the, the, the assemblers made the switch to, to Albany, Georgia. So they had to hire an entirely new, uh, construction staff, assembly staff. And that led, uh, and obviously that would lead to quality issues. And those are quality issues that dogged McGregor right to the very end for the rest of his, its existence. So they never really came, overcame that. They were also in the golf ball business at that time. And they never, they never quite got the golf ball right either. And they, they famously lost Hogan due to the golf ball. Um, other, other, you know, in the fifties, tour pros would play the McGregor golf ball. They tee off with it, finish the first hole with it to fulfill their contract. Yeah. After the first hole, they put the McGregor ball back in and take out a, a title of turn a cushion <laughs> or something or a small thing. <laughs> yeah, so. And then hold it up for the photo op at the end, right? Yeah, there you go. Exactly right. Here's an oblong ball that I played today. <laughs> Well, they, they, they moved, they actually, they did, they moved the golf ball manufacturing to Georgia as well to Covington, Georgia, which I found interesting because that's where Bridgestone is. That's where Bridgestone is. I, I asked the guys at Bridgestone and they didn't know of any connection with the old McGregor plant, but that's something I want to look into further because that <laughs> it's too, it's too much of a coincidence that. Yeah. Right. Done Covington. That's so true. So in, in 62, they make a major move, you know, they've been been hitting the uh, they've had a gut punch for the last four they make a major move and sign jack nicholas before that it's not that you talk about the gut punch there was another gut punch they um they changed the operating system to an ibm computerized system and that was they did that almost immediately when they bought the company and i don't know have you ever been through a corporate operating system change i actually have yeah it was a hot mess yeah, it's a hot. I've been, through, <laughs> I've been through three, and hot mess is putting it kind. Yeah, Each one's been more. Different. Everyone hates their lives. Yes, I'm yes. aware of that. Yeah, and and the customers hate the company. I mean, 100. It, it, it it's generally a nightmare. And this one, just multiply that times 50, and you get the mess that McGregor created for itself. Yeah. Uh, so you have you have a, 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 a instead of being a a customer focus focus on the golf pro, it goes more corporate. You're changing the facilities where things are being built and made, and then in doing so, changing and having to train new people, and then then on top of all of that, going through a new accounting system. Exactly. They, they were in a position where they couldn't bill. They couldn't send out a bill for about three months. And over that time, they lost, in one year, they lost almost $12 million. Now, at the time of the sale, 
uh, at the time of the sale, the last year of Brunswick, uh, uh, McGregor sales were at $17 million in 1957, 58 money. Today, that would be close to $172 million. What's better than that is they, they turned a $4 million profit on $17 million in sales, which is almost 25%. That would be 40 that would be $40 million in today's money. Now, you tell me of any company in any business that wouldn't want a $40 million profit on $172 million in sales. They were doing fantastic. Well, this they lost $12 million in three months. First thing you do then is you change the pay scale of, the, of your salespeople because, all oh, these guys are making too much money. We got to fix that. Well, the salesmen say, forget you. Most of them went to go work for a cushion. And then and then they decided at the same time, as all this is going on, they said, you know what? We're number one in pro sales. We don't see any reason why we can't be number one in retail sales as well. And so, so they, they re-embrace, re-embrace retail. And history repeats itself. What happens to the pros? They say, hey, we were getting all the love and attention. What, what, what gives? Now you're selling similar stuff at retail at a lower price. Um, you know, what's going on here? Yeah. So let me reiterate here. So in 62, they signed Nicholas for like the most expensive like pro to be ever brought onto a brand, correct? Right. $5 million. Uh, I'm sorry. Five years, $100,000. Yeah. Five years, 100000 which is unheard of money back then. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because no one had ever done anything like that. And they had to, they actually had to compete for him. Uh, you know, Jack had been playing uh, McGregor equipment since he was like 10. Um, as he's turning pro... Uh, another another golf company, kind of an upstart company called First Flight Golf, was throwing some big money numbers at him to try to get him to sign for that company. Um, Rick Bob Ricky goes to Benziger and says, "Hey, we don't have to beat their offer; we just have to meet it." And Rick and Benziger famously says, "Don't lose them." So they signed him to that. So they signed him to that to, to that contract. So we have quality issues. We signed Jack for a hundred grand. And we're going through leadership changes throughout this whole period, are we not? Yeah, five different presidents over 12 years. Five presidents. Okay. Well, I mean, it's just it's an unheard of. And on top of this, they have an opportunity to shift into a new market that this new upstart company's making some headway ping. Mm-hmm. And they don't. Investment casting, yeah. Yeah. Um, Did they look at it? Do we know? Yeah, if, Penna actually brought it up at some sales meetings in the 50s and said, hey, this is this is something we really need to look at. And management at that point said, the MTs are selling like hotcakes. You know, they had the, the MT irons, which were revolutionary. You know, they came out in 1949, the, the first low center of gravity iron ever produced. Uh, so it had a low center of gravity, so it was easy to launch. It was sli- The lofts were slightly jacked, so it would go like hell. And you know they were selling those things hand over fist, um, but Penna says, and Penna just is thinking like three or four steps ahead of everybody else. This investment casting is a thing. Management says, "Nah, we're doing good. I don't see why would we want to get into that. We're the, you know, we're a pro only company. You know, the pros don't like this kind of stuff. It doesn't feel good. We're not going to get into that." So all throughout the fifties, you know, the rest of the fifties, sixties, and into the mid seventies, they're completely poo pooing the whole idea of investment casting. So Ping is making it a thing. Links in 1970 joins the fray. So they're they're kind of revolutionizing the investment cast uh, a business. And the thing about investment casting is it makes it very easy to you know, create a mold, and you can make that mold to do anything you want. 
so they, you know, perimeter weighting, okay, uh, cavity back, make it just a heck of a lot easier to hit and to launch. So it was a real game improvement kind of iron. And, you know, uh, McGregor at that point said, we, we're pro only. We're, we're, we're forged blades, man. We're we were pro only, but we're in retail now. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So this goes on for like 20 years, this, this uh, Brunswick kind of endeavor. And, you know, they've gone through leadership changes. They've, you know, they've screwed over the pros, if you want to call it that. Uh, they don't take on this new technology, the precision casted molding. And they decide finally in 1978 to sell. So we go from a shoelace company to a golf company to a bowling company and we sell to the Wicks. Is that fair? What? What? Who are the Wicks? What's going on there? The Wicks Corporation. Um, they were the world's largest lumber retailer. We end part one just as the Wicks Company is about to assume control of McGregor Golf. Make sure to tune in to listen to part two of the rise and demise of McGregor Golf, because this story is about to get crazy. McGregor is getting kicked around like a soccer ball, but it's about to see a resurgence, only to fall prey to a horrible business move and an incredible what-just-happened story about Greg Norman. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Lewis.